Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with my co-host for today, Matt Swartz. We're sticking with the Matt theme on co-hosts, so I, it's, I always get the name right. It's always a Matt. Matt Swartz is quite different from Matt Scott in the fact that, Matt, you have a, a long history in the outdoor space and a lot of time living out of vehicles, including a historic Cortez that you had. Uh, we did do a podcast with Matt and his partner, Amanda, uh, last year at some point, if you want to hear more about his his travels and, and his experience on the road. But one of the things that you learned about is how do you maintain all of these systems when you're in the middle of nowhere? How do you keep working? How do you be a creative and 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 do the job that you and Amanda do when you're in the middle of nowhere? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about portable power systems primarily, but we're going to also talk a little bit about power systems in general for the vehicle. So thanks for being on today, Matt. Thanks to this week's sponsor, GCI Outdoor. Whether you're heading out for a weekend of adventure in the woods or to your backyard fire pit, GCI Outdoor gear is ready for whatever you have planned. GCI Outdoor has been around for 25 years, so they know what they're doing when it comes to the best in portable recreation gear. GCI has innovative products ranging from outdoor rockers to complete camp kitchens and everything in between. And with a limited lifetime warranty, you know they stand behind everything they make. GCI Outdoor Gear is comfortable, durable, and built for adventures, big and small. Try them out for yourself. Head over to their website at GCIOutdoor.com and save 10% off your first purchase when you sign up for their email list. Thanks again, GCI. Yeah, I'm excited. This is a topic that I think so many people have questions around, want to know more about. Electricity can be a little intimidating, honestly, you know, it can kill you, Yeah, um, sure. but it can also make your life a lot more comfortable and easy on the road. Like you alluded to, um, you know, my background is in just general outdoor space, backpacking, rock climbing, things like that. And I came to vehicle-based travel in 2016 in the Cortez. That was our first vehicle we traveled in. Um, and we did install a full standalone solar power system uh, so that we could continue working on the road and also have some conveniences. So uh, yeah, there's a huge amount of value in having an auxiliary or house power system in your truck or RV or camper. There are a lot of options too. There, there's no one right way to do it. You know, there, there are a handful of ways to execute that. Yeah. And I think that we're going to start off by talking about the three basic systems that we tend to see within vehicles. So there's going to be a dual battery system, which is the most common. It's been around the longest it's been used by overlanders for a long time and for purposes beyond powering electronics and house systems. So dual battery systems were used as a an additional way to start the vehicle if the primary starting battery had failed or gone flat. It was also a way to augment available power for winching operations. Um, if you were driving at low speeds at night, it used to be that vehicles had much lower outputs in their alternator. In fact, I think you mentioned about that in your Cortez was one of the challenges is that your alternator only put out so many amps from an older vehicle. They just really only at times generate 30, 40, 50 amps um, when they're at idle, whereas um, a modern vehicle oftentimes put out many times that. Dual battery systems are the more traditional method of adding additional power to your vehicle. And now there, now we have dedicated house systems. So that would be similar to like what you did in the Cortez and that we'll find in most camper systems. But they're also still very popular in SUVs where you have a totally separate house battery. It's oftentimes lithium ion. It's rarely, if ever, used for assisting with starting. It's a way to completely isolate the starting and vehicle systems 
from the camping and house systems. And it's typically supported while underway with some kind of a DC to DC charging system. So that way, when the alternator starts putting out alternator level current uh, at usually uh, 13.4, 13.6 volts or higher than the DC to DC converter will kick in and it'll start charging that house battery system. And oftentimes those systems are augmented with solar that's maybe permanently affixed to the vehicle or solar blankets or solar panels that are deployed while in camp. And we're also seeing more and more vehicles using other solutions like wind generators and things like that, that can help provide additional power um, when you're even in bad weather with very limited sun. And then of course, the third one, which is what we're going to focus on a lot more today because it has become such a compelling option is a portable power system um, like you see from Dometic and from Goal Zero and others. And Matt, you were the primary research and testing editor for the article that we had in the fall 2021 Overland Journal issue where you compared all of the primary or the most notable power systems that were on the market. What did you find out in the beginning that maybe kind of shook some of your understanding of how this works? You know, I think just taking a step back, you know, we installed a standalone hardwired system in our RV because it felt like at the time, uh, some of these standalone, you know, one unit does everything solutions um, were a little bit limited in, Mm. in scope and what they could do. And I think that was what I was most pleasantly surprised about when I started doing the research for this article was that these units are very capable by themselves. You know, they incorporate everything in a standard solar system. There's a charge controller to manage input from solar panels or a DC power source. So that could be, you know, coming from your alternator. They have an AC inverter in most of them. So you can get AC current to run household appliances. You know, the typical stuff you would plug in in your house to the wall with the two prong, that's AC power. They also provide 12 volt output uh, in the form of USB-A, USB-C, or sometimes, you know, more standardized 12 volt um, interface like the Anderson power pole type plugs, um, things that can handle higher amperage like 30 amp output. You could theoretically power a hardwired system from one of these all-in-one units through a 30 amp plug. Uh, And that's actually what I've experienced in the Scout, which is such a great example of an OEM camper manufacturer deciding to askew the traditional house system with solar panels and everything else uh, with separate batteries. And they use a Goal Zero Yeti. Uh, They use the 1500X. That's this unit right here. Which is the unit right next to Matt there for those of you that are watching on YouTube. It has been totally flawless in the Scout. In fact, it's been so reliable. I just leave everything running in the camper with it just stored and off of the vehicle. So the camper has a 180 watt solar panel installed on the front of it. It allows me to leave the windows cracked ever so slightly so I don't get weather in, but I let the 12 volt fan run all the time. Mm -hmm. So it keeps the camper constantly ventilated out for moisture and mildew and anything else that may happen. And what was really impressive to me, and this again, kind of what you experienced, I had no idea they had come so far in the fact that they now have fully integrated solar charge controllers. It used to be that you could only use the Yeti or the Goal Zero panel with a specific amount of voltage and a very specific connector that went into 
the unit. Now they still have that same connector so that they are backwards compatible to their other products, but they also have an Anderson style uh, charging port for the solar panels. So these, this is a totally different manufacturer of solar. It has a much broader range of solar voltage that the system can consume now. And it shows a, this like reassuring little blue flashing light that the solar panels are constantly providing power. And I, and I look down and I'm getting 96 watts out of these panels, or I'm getting 105, or if, even if it's a cloudy day, I'm seeing 30 or 40 watts out of these panels. And that's very cool. And the other thing that was so surprising is that, and I don't know how many of the other Goal Zero products offer this, but the 1500X has an additional module that can be installed under where the lid is that allows for a DC to DC charger. So you install this additional auxiliary module and it can take up to 50 amps of 12 volt current from the alternator to rapidly charge the battery system uh, within the 1500X. So it's literally everything that I need for an expedition camper like that for the kind of power consumption that I do. I, I obviously don't run a hair dryer or a microwave or anything like that. So if you need just regular power consumption, um, it does that. And then because it has an Anderson style 12 volt outlet, you take the entire wiring harness from the camper and you plug it into one port on the 1500X. It runs all the lights the fans, the 12 volt outlet for the WeBoost, it runs all of it off of that one box. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And it gives you the flexibility to pull the brain, so to speak, out of the, out of the camper, if you have issues, right? Like if there's ever, there's ever an issue with the battery, with the charge controller, with the AC inverter, which are all contained within the Yeti, you just pull it out, send it to goal zero for service. And you know, your wiring remains intact in the camper. You don't Mm. have to mess with any of that. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Like you mentioned with that, that module for 50 amp input, they also have a module you can connect that allows you to daisy chain external batteries for extra storage. And they, they sell basically these systems that are designed to run your home in an emergency, um, power outage. So, and a bunch of manufacturers do offer that, you know, we're mentioning the Yeti 1500 and goal zero specifically, I think because, you know, that in the article was my editor's choice, you know, cost aside, it, it is the most expensive unit that we tested um, for that particular article, but it's just so rich with features and functionality that, you know, it's just, it, it was hands down for me, the best one, Renogy, uh, EcoFlow, a lot of these other kind of up and coming or, or established companies in the space are making external units that you can get, uh, or I should say external battery storage that can be plugged into the base unit, so mm. to speak. So you can just get crazy amounts of power storage, you know, maybe not quite equivalent to like a Tesla power wall, but kind of aiming at that market, you know, people who want to be prepared for a power outage mm. at home, you know, or for a week in the backcountry with bad sure. weather where you're not getting solar and you're not really running the vehicle. Sure. It's pretty impressive what you can get out of those. And I've not had any any issues with mine. The only thing that I found with long-term use with the Yeti is that they have got some kind of an alarm on it that has nothing to do with the unit faulting or failing. Like all the numbers are good. The battery levels are, I think it's something to do with a Bluetooth or some kind Mm. of Wi-Fi connection or something. And it does have both. And Uh, every once in a while it'll start beeping. And I've tried 
everything that I, I mean, I probably need to just give them a call because there's no information about how to make it stop. Interesting. Beeping. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny how those things come up. Like this is just a, like as an information to the manufacturers, if you're listening, there's never a reason for a, for something to just start beeping unless it's really bad. <laughs> like show it on the display. You have this very rich display, yep. show the information that you're trying to communicate on a display, not at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> One thing you also mentioned, Rich, which I think bears repeating is uh, the flexibility of these units. You know, you talked about kind of the cross compatibility and, and I realized that recently, uh, Amanda and I were just down in Southern California with the Airstream. We were staying at Saboba Flight Park, the hat that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> nice. It's a paragliding spot. But uh, it was funny because uh, long story short, we don't have an AC inverter in our Airstream. Um, one of the great questions that remains, it's not a question. Airstreams are not generally designed for people who are spending large amounts of time off grid. So it's an option, but they don't come with it. So anyway, we're carrying around a Yeti with us for AC power when we don't have shore power hookup. And I actually didn't bring the goal zero panels with me. I had two Jackery panels with me. Gotcha. Um, and they worked with the Yeti system. Oh, that's cool. No problem. Um, and 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. They wouldn't have been compatible. Right. Or they would have required some modification to work. Yeah. And and what I've found is most of these units now are smart enough. If you plug an input in, it has internal circuitry to identify the input to know whether it's acceptable to oh, manage the voltage, power from sure. that, you know, and, and either it will not allow the input or it will give you some sort of a warning or an error. You know, mm. you don't get that with hardwired systems necessarily. True. You have to know, you have to know what plug goes where, what kind of voltages and amperages you can put into the system there. So these, I think that's one of the other big advantages, you know, they take a lot of the guesswork out of it and, and coming back to safety, you know, electricity is kind of a, can be a dangerous thing if you don't know how to work with it safely. Um, yeah, particularly at 120 volts. Yeah. These just make it so much safer, you know, um, at least that's my experience too. No, totally. You don't even, you don't end up opening them up at all. Um, they do have some limitations. One of the downsides is the fact that you've put all of your eggs in one basket. So when you have your own system, like you built in your RV, mm -hmm. if it starts to behave differently because you installed all of it, you're like, ah, I know what that is. Right. Or I can go to the local RV store and I can buy this one solar charge controller and replace it. And now the whole system is back up and running. Sure. Whereas with these all in one units, that is something that's worth noting is if they do have a problem, typically it brings down the whole system. Right. I mean, if this stops working, you're not going to open the case up yourself to deal mm -hmm. with it, you know, unless maybe you're an electrical engineer, sure. but then you're also probably voiding your warranty, you know? So, Correct. um, you know, a perfect example is in a hardwired system, like the one we had in our Cortez, we got two 100 amp hour, uh, lead acid batteries and, or AGM batteries. They were a hundred bucks a piece cause we got them used and they lasted us three years. Wow. That's the same amp hour capacity as this. Yeah, and this sure. is $2,000. Now this is a lot more than just batteries. So it's not fair to compare the two, but, um, the point being you know, batteries have a finite lifetime. And uh, in our system that was all put together piece by piece, we could easily replace just one thing. Um, and and with this, yes, if it goes down, you're going to ship it away and you're going to need to wait. With everything, you're going to run into those limitations, those right? There's those compromises. There's trade-offs, sure. you know? Um, I mean, we were kind of talking about that before, even introducing electricity and an auxiliary 
electrical system into a vehicle is inherently putting more complexity into it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something you may have to deal with on the road if it doesn't function as expected. Yeah. I remember I was, for those that are listening that would kind of like to know a little bit about maybe one of the OG OGs of overlanding. There's a gentleman by the name of Tom Shepard. He lives in the UK and he is certainly uh, a mentor of mine and someone that I have looked up to for decades because of his significant expeditions across the Sahara, Northern Africa and other places around the world. But I was visiting with him in the UK and he had built up this G-Wagon for travel in Algeria. And he was saying, and I have a a second battery. And I said, well, what do you use for a dual battery system? And he kind of gets this twinkle in his eye and he he, uh, brings the back seat of the passenger seat forward. And there's just one of those mechanical switches that is off battery number one, battery number two, and combine or all. Like he was the dual battery system. Mm Mm-hmm. There, it was a mechanical switch that managed all of his battery systems. Now, if you think about it, that's the easiest, most inexpensive, but it's also the most failure prone because like, I probably don't have the memory of things like that. Like, like Tom does where he probably has a checklist at the end of every day and he makes sure to shut this off or to turn that to where he needs it to be. If you leave those two combined and you go out for a hike and you left the lights on, now the car doesn't start. That's the nice thing about some of these automated systems, but it is certainly possible to build an auxiliary battery system into your vehicle very inexpensively. And I, and I'm glad that you brought up the point that you did about the Cortez and those used batteries. Lithium ion batteries are are the hot new thing yep. for a lot of reasons. They're super great, yeah. especially on the weight reduction and the size of the packaging reduction side. I was going to say power density is good. The yep. weight, the weight savings is huge and, and the cycles, they get a lot more so cycles much more. in their lifetime than an AGM. I mean, they have a lot of built-in protection too. They do. Yeah. They, a lot of them now have these battery management systems built in that control right. the charging voltage and, you know, uh, they monitor temperature for ideal conditions. Um, they're obviously a bigger investment up front. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're many times the cost of AGM batteries or lead acid, but in the long run, they are a better investment as, at least as far as I've been led to believe. Now I, I haven't, I think, I think you're right. But, yeah. but to your point too, is like, that's the opportunity because when we talk about a principle of overlanding, like we are today around bat portable battery systems, we also want to always make sure that we present What's the lowest cost option for the listener? Because there are many times when a system like Tom Shepard uses, and he's one of the most accomplished overlanders on the planet, his is literally belts and suspenders. It is a switch that he turns mechanically with his hand. He has two batteries and a small length of wire, and that does everything that he needs it to do when he's traveling for months in the backcountry. You found some used AGMs. How likely is it that somewhere on Expedition Portal or some other forum that there is a bunch of people who want to put in lithium batteries and they're selling their used Odyssey AGMs. And these are great batteries and you can buy them for a fraction of the cost of what they were new. And then you either put in a mechanical system or you put in a simple isolator or DC to DC controller. And for a couple hundred dollars, you've solved a problem that can also cost thousands in in different fashions. So there are other ways to skin this cat. And we don't want anyone listening to think that these portable systems that are very complex and have a lot of features and are very robust is the only way to go about this. There are less expensive ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there are some great options kind of in the middle too, you know, yeah. like national Luna has this, it's like a portable unit yeah, power pack. They call it or something. It was actually, yeah. If, if, if you look at the back, it's the final page of the article, but you know, I, I put it in there, you know, I, I thought it was important to give it a nod because it's, it's under $400 and it basically lets you take any 12 volt battery and hook up a positive and a negative lead. And then it gives you a couple 12 volt outlets. And I, I think there's some USBs in there, I believe. It yeah. does. I don't think that one had an AC output built into it. It does not, but it does have a built-in dual battery system. Right. And you can easily go to, you know, a uh, an Ace Hardware or a Pep Boys and buy yourself, you know, like a 300 watt AC inverter that plugs into a 12 volt outlet. Mm-hmm. And then for under $500, you have a 12 volt system that you don't have to have almost any electrical knowledge to put together. Yeah. Um, and you get AC and DC power uh, and you could do it with a used battery, like you just mentioned. Yeah. Great example. And the national Luna stuff is known for its long-term durability. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they build extremely robust, long lasting systems because of the environment that they're designed for being in Southern Africa. So So that's a great, that's a great example. One thing I'm kind of curious about, and I feel like with your knowledge of, you know, off-road and overland travel, you, you probably have a better understanding of this. How is a dual battery system different than a house battery system? Or are they not different? They can be the same. Um, traditionally, a dual battery system was used and they kind of first showed up um, around larger displacement engines, and partic- I was, particularly diesels. I was going to say, because in like, for instance, in the Ram that I've got, it has two batteries. Yeah. Like that's, that's standard. That's the way it works. Yeah. So the reason, the primary reason why they showed up was that in cold climates, you have, um, your engine is 6.6 liters, something like that. 6.7. Yeah. 6.7 liters. Okay. Yep. And it's a diesel, which has high compression, high compression, a minimum of 20, 22 to one compression. Mm-hmm. Some of them are a little higher than that. So you have a large displacement engine with a lot of compression that you have to turn at a high enough rate to get that that diesel cycle to begin. So that's the reason why many diesel vehicles and particularly ones with larger displacement engines will have dual battery systems. Got it. And that is to increase the total available cold cranking amps for primarily cold climates. And that's where it kind of started from. However, there was recreational and there was backcountry applications. There was like farm applications and other things where they needed to be able to operate winches or they needed to be able to operate um, other power devices um, out in the field where they wanted to be able to isolate the starting of the engine from the the function of those other systems. In the four-wheel drive space, a dual battery system on something like a Jeep Wrangler would have been installed primarily to, I've killed my main starting battery because I've been winching. Mm-hmm. So you can do that. You can, a winch um, will pull hundreds of, power. hundreds of amps right. a minute. So, you know, they can, if you're not getting any power in, you can flatten, depending on the size of the winch, you can flatten a battery in a matter of just a few minutes. And now you can't restart your engine. <laughs> so they would install a second battery so then they could flip a switch combine the two, restart the engine, let the batteries charge back up again. Or if you were at the end of a very complex winching operation and the winch was getting drawn down because the voltage of the system was getting dropped down, you could also combine them to give the winch that last little bit of extra energy uh, to get through the obstacle. So that was typically why you would see a dual battery system in a recreational vehicle or an early overland vehicle was redundancy for starting and to support heavy winching operations. And it could help 
with other things like driving lights, I imagine, you know, some of these high wattage driving lights probably pull a decent amount of power. And And 15, 20 years ago, vehicles just didn't have that high of an output from their alternators. So a lot of dual battery systems were for just that kind of scenario. It is, it's raining, Mm -hmm. it's cold. So you have your heater blower running, you have your windshield wipers running, you have your headlights and your auxiliary lights on, you're driving at low speed, so low RPM, low output from the alternator. And all of a sudden, all the lights start getting very, very yellow and very dim <laughs> because the vehicles just didn't generate that much power. I remember my first Land Cruiser in FJ40 that I had, I think it had a 35 amp alternator. That was oh, wow. a yeah. very, very low power. Got it. So a dual battery system on a vehicle like that was pretty popular. Whereas today, dual battery systems are most often used to support all of these complex electronics that we bring along, fridges and everything else like that. And that's when you start to make the transition from thinking it as a way of supporting four-wheel drive mechanical support like in winching to I'm going to now run my house systems right separately from the vehicle electronics and that's one of the mistakes that people make the most often in my mind is that they too heavily integrate the two you want to make sure that your house systems are fully if very close to fully isolated from your vehicle systems you want to minimize the number of electronics that run out of the factory uh, 12 volt sockets. You want to minimize the amount of battery power that you're pulling from the starting battery. Um, you want to have a separate house system, which could be a battery or one of these boxes like we're talking about today. And you want to have some kind of an isolation between the two. That way, if you're watching Netflix for too long or whatever, you ran the blender too many times at night and you've flattened the house battery, you haven't killed your starting battery. Right. You don't even touch it. And that is- You keep I, them totally isolated. I was going to say the isolator, you know, if for people that are interested in setting up a system like this, I mean, that's a pretty inexpensive thing. And even to pay to have someone install that, I imagine it's not that expensive in the no. scheme of things. So No, they're not. And, and something like a National Luna dual battery system, or there's a, there's some other great ones from Red Arc um, that are also mechanical or they're solid state um, from other manufacturers. There's some even some MOSFET solid state um, battery isolators. There's a b- bunch of different options out there. Um, there's another one called IBS that is a great quality unit. And those are all very easy to install. That's good to know. Yeah. In our, in our RV in the Cortez, we, we didn't even use, uh, an isolator, the two systems, the vehicle starter battery and our off-grid power were completely isolated from one another. Smart. And you know, it, there were advantages and disadvantages. Like, uh, I remember spending an extended time in Northern California where we had very little light. It was in the winter you know, there was tree cover and we just weren't getting the charging from the panels, even on a good day. Mm. If we had them integrated, we could have just started the vehicle and run it for, you know, 20 minutes and topped off the batteries. We didn't have that option. So there are advantages to having them connected to a certain degree. But uh, as you pointed out, you want to make sure they're separated so you don't risk drying down your starter. Correct. As well as the house. Yeah. Battery. Our goal is to get remote. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. These, you know, even a fridge or so many of these systems that take so much power, you can lose track of time. The, the hike takes a little longer than you think. And you forgot some lights were on or whatever. It's very easy to flatten a battery. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a couple of times where we, we did, we drew our batteries down too low and, and when they get low, 
And I've noticed it with these battery boxes, uh, the all-in-one units, as well as, you know, standalone systems, the low end recharging feels like it takes forever. You know, if you get down to the 15, 20% range, it's like exponentially longer to get charge into the battery than if you keep them towards the the top end of uh, power storage. And that that makes sense. Electrical current is more efficient the higher the voltage. Mm -hmm. So if you're starting with a very low voltage battery, it's going to recharge more slowly at the lowest voltage than it will at the highest end of the voltage. So the first first 25% is going to take a lot longer than the last 25%. It's also important for those that are listening to understand what is the limits of your batteries. Each manufacturer should have a way of expressing what they consider to be depth of an appropriate level of depth of draw. So a traditional AGM like you had in your RV, um, those are going to normally be around 50% depth of draw. Um, It's going to depend on the manufacturer of the battery, but it normally is right at 12 volts. So people will think like, oh, I'm only at 50%. Well, no, like if you're down at 30% and you're at 11.6 volts or 11.4, volts, you're already starting to do damage to the batteries. Um, That's where these lithiums are very clever and they're very smart. And something like on the Yeti from Goal Zero, it's very intelligent in how it communicates its current state of charge. Yeah. From my research that I did for the article, uh, using this as an example, again, when it says zero on the display, it's not actually zero. They build in that buffer to help you prevent damage to the batteries. Um, although lithium can be drawn, drawn down fairly low without damaging the batteries. And the cool thing with this is you can go into a smartphone app and you can adjust that, you know, if you, interesting threshold, you you can, yeah, you can adjust that. Um, this one, you can also update charging profile. There's a lot of stuff you can do uh, that kind of future proofs this to a certain degree, which is cool. Yeah. The AGMs, I mean, very sensitive to that. They are. Yeah. And we drew ours down too far and and you notice it affects the overall life of them. Like you said, 50%. So really, you know, our 200 amp hour AGM setup is really the same power as a 100 amp hour lithium battery, mm-hmm. it, like give or take, you know, they're, they're so similar in that way. So it's really important when you install like the Victron battery monitoring gauge in your vehicle, or when you buy a camper that you ask the camper manufacturer, what is this set to? Is it set to is 0% at the manufacturer's limit for depth of draw or is 0% means the battery is now at 10% or 10 volts and I've done a bunch of damage to it. So I actually like to put most of those gauges, reflect them in voltage. These are 12 volt systems. If you go below 12 volts on a battery, with some exceptions like lithium, uh, you're starting to do damage to the battery itself. Sure. I actually found some interesting uh, results around that too, because when you get into 12 volt applications, a lot of appliances rely on that voltage needs to be 12 or higher for them to function properly. Correct. Um, And one example of that is, uh, for instance, we were running an ARB fridge in our camper and our system is an AGM system. And so all of our 12 volt outputs were coming directly from the battery. They weren't regulated. So what happens with that is when the voltage of the batteries gets too low, if you're running the ARB fridge, with the 12 volt power source, it actually will just turn off, even though the battery's not dead, so to speak. Sure. And that was a surprise to me. And uh, once I learned that, I realized the value of running that off AC power occasionally because the AC inverter can pull power from the batteries when they're below 12% and still output that 120 oh, below volt. 12 volts. Sure. Yep. Now well, that's on, clever. Yeah. Now on all of the units that I tested for the article, that was one of the things that I was really interested in. I, I thought to myself, if the voltage drops below 12 volts, will they still put out, will they still power a 12 volt appliance? And so I plugged 
12 volt fridges with the 12 volt connectors into all of these. And I also used a multimeter and I tested and all of the 12 volt outputs on these units are regulated. So what happens is even if the battery drops below 12 volts, it still puts out a standardized voltage somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's say, 12.4. I don't understand electrical engineering enough to explain to you how that works. Yeah. So it's up voltaging it, which costs additional power. Right. So if you're trying, it's like you would do from going from 12 volts to 120 volts, you're consuming power to up voltage it to that next level. So that's interesting. So it even accelerates the rate that the battery is running out of power. But it is, it is an advantage because, you know, if you have a, if you have a 12 volt appliance that you need to run and the battery drops below 12 volts. Sure. You can do that. I mean, I've seen the the voltage on the battery on the Yeti drop like down into the 10 point whatever range and it will still put out power. And that's like wow. maybe when it gets down to 20%. And, and with this, as far as I understand, you're not doing any damage. You know, the system will stop working basically at the point where you would, you would do damage to it. Um, I think you can affect long-term function of the batteries, you know, so I shouldn't say you're not doing any damage, but it will still function. Yeah. So that, but that it has regulated, some fail safes in play. It, like. it does. Yeah. It, it tries to keep you from destroying it. Well, and so what did you think of, um, we've talked a lot about the goal zero. Sure. What were some of the other units? It looks like you also evaluated the Renogy. Mm-hmm. How did how did that one work? That that one's like a on wheels with a cart kind of a thing. It's a much bigger unit. Yeah, you know, so the Renogy's cool. The Renogy it feels a little dated, if I'm being honest, compared to some of the units that are available now. Um and, and I think that's just because they have put a little bit more effort into their commercial and and standalone units in the 12 volt and solar space. You know, they're super well known for solar panels. They make a really affordable, decent quality solar panel. I think you can get them for like under a hundred bucks on wow. Amazon, you know, a wow. rigid solar panel. Uh, and, and they make a lot of solar components that are good quality and affordable. So I think that's where the majority of the company's effort is not in units like this. Now, I, I still think that they're, they're all in one power solution, this Lycan power box that we tried was great. It worked well. It's got a lot of USB A's. It's got a lot of 12 volt barrel inputs, which feels like, again, a little dated, you know, USB C is kind of becoming a standard in the 12 volt space, uh, for, for USB charging the, the 12 volt barrel adapters. There are not that many things out there that you would utilize for that. They have some, there's some like a fridge, I guess would be one that you'd plug in. Yeah. But, um, you know, in my experience, even I think it's called like a Hella adapter. Yep. Um, these are smaller. They're they're really small diameter, like oh, okay. for running like LED string lights and stuff. Oh, I see what you're um, saying. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. They're they're kind of like the round one on the yeah. On the goals yeah, you yeah. can see them. They're oh, yeah. they're right above the USBs there you, there. you know, so it's more like if you think about like um, you know, let's say like a little. I see that USB. Um, speaker that has a 12 volt adapter with a barrel plug, barrel style plug. It's those round ones. So Got it. they have limited use, I think in general. The cool thing about the Renogy though, is it will charge lead acid batteries. Like, so you can have auxiliary 12 volt batteries and it will manage charging of them. So that's neat. Uh, and definitely the handle and the wheels are great. These things are all pretty heavy. You they know, I heavy. mean, I think they're like anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds. So wheels are smart. You is, know, the, save uh, your back. is the Renogy lithium? The Renogy is lithium, I believe. Yeah. I think they were, I think they're all, everything we tested is lithium as far as I know, as far as I remember. Yeah. I think everything, everything I tested was lithium. Um, but yeah, so the Renogy was good. It has a lot of outlets. It was somewhat limited in terms of the information that it provides on the display. That's where coming back to the Yeti again, 
it got the editor's choice for a lot of reasons. And that was one of the other reasons you get so much information on the display. The Renogy gives you some information. It doesn't, I, if I'm remembering right, it doesn't estimate time till empty. Uh, it doesn't tell you how much power you're drawing. It just tells you in a percentage what the batteries are at. Yeah. So, and I like that about the goal zero a lot to know how many Watts is coming in yep. and how many Watts are being consumed. That's a great way to plan for how your day is going to go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you can extrapolate that, you know, plug in mm-hmm. a device, turn it on, see what it draws. It will estimate how much time is left, but yep. y- you know, you also know the power density. You can do some math and figure out how many hours it should run for mm-hmm. if, if you want to figure that out. And what I did on the goal zero is since it has the small Anderson connection, I put one of those power works meters between that and the wiring loom for the camper. That way I can see what exactly is the camper drawing as opposed to laptops that are plugged in or, or other accessories that are plugged into the goal zero. I can see exactly what the camper is consuming, which was pretty interesting insights. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's also, it's fun to validate any number that you see on the display with an external device. I mean, we did that for the test, you know, I used, it's not fancy, but one of those kilowatt meters for our AC load testing. And there is a variation between what that tells you and what the, the, the display tells you on the units. I mean, it would be super fun to do this again and to actually pull an electrical engineer in, have them open up the units and do whatever testing needs to be done to, to validate a lot of these numbers. Because again, as someone who doesn't have an education around electronics, yep. there's only so much I'm really comfortable doing with For these. Sure. Renogy was cool. Um, I think the Dometic was was an interesting one and and a lot different than than most of the units in that it doesn't do AC output. It is just a 12 volt output. Um, and because of that, it is much smaller. Uh, it is. Yeah, it's a, a very compact unit, super robust handle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the fact that it's as compact of a footprint as it is. It's got kind of an interesting panel on the top and like you have to hold it. You have to like, I, yeah, I have to if be you don't honest. Know, if you don't know, right. you got to hold the power button for quite some time before it starts doing its things. Yep. It's a capacitative touchscreen. So exactly. there's no tactile feedback, uh, which is, you know, it's, it, again, there's limitations with all of these. That was probably the thing I liked least about that unit, but the size is very compelling. You know, everyone's got space for one of those in their rig. Quick, uh, quick access to the fuses. Yep. Do you remember on this Anderson plug on the back, it says that it's an input, but can you also use it as an output as well? Does it, is it a way to tie it in with a dual battery system? I don't, only? I don't believe so. Okay. Um, so it only, the energy only goes one way. Yeah. As, yeah. as far as I remember on that one, um, the best use case for that, I think it's made by Dometic pair it with a fridge, you yep. know, it will run a fridge for, uh, a couple days. It just makes it simple. Uh, and, and for, it has USB on there. Yep. It, it didn't have, um, any USB C, which nope. I think would be an advantage when they come out with their next version of the model. But the thing that I did really like about it was the handle, um, how easy it would be to create some brackets to securely mount it in the back of a vehicle. It would work well in a small vehicle. So it's pretty clever in that way. Yeah. For someone who just needs 12 volt for maybe a phone, a camera battery and a fridge, Yeah, you know, it's, it, it does all of that and it's small and it's easy to carry around. Yeah. I like that one a lot. One of the other ones that's, that's, really worth considering. And, and, you know, for a a couple 
couple interesting reasons is the EcoFlow products. The Delta is the, the unit that I tested. The Delta kind of crushed all of the others in its recharge time. Most of these take anywhere from five to 12 hours to recharge. The Delta recharges from 20% to 100% in under two hours, yeah. which is really cool. And it, it's very simple how it does that. It has an integrated charger that accepts like 1700 watts of AC power in. Most of these other ones, the AC chargers that are standard that come with them, accept the maximum of maybe 400 watts AC. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not like a mystery how they do it. It's the fact that it can accept 1700 watts. And that's really cool because maybe, you know, maybe you want the standalone system and you don't want to figure out a way to recharge from panels. But with this, I mean, you can go and find an AC outlet somewhere and plug in for under two hours. And you're, you're having lunch. You're topped off. Yeah. You can do that at a coffee shop. You know, you can do it uh, at a cafe pretty easily. I'll give you a good example of the use case for that unit. I, with recently purchasing a sailboat, which as they say, it's like the best day of your life is when you buy a boat and the, the second best day is when you sell it. But <laughs> so I'm like, I'm in the middle of, of all of these projects on this sailboat and there's no 120 volt. There's very limited 12 volt on the boat. So I'm like, I'm going to take one of these test units and just like, I've never used this product. I'm going to go use it while I'm working on the boat. Um, and this thing is fantastic. I mean, it has multiple 120 out. Yeah, I think outlets. you get six 120 outlets. It effortlessly runs my Nespresso, so I get I get hot. There, that's all you need. <laughs> it, it had yeah, it had my heart at a properly functioning espresso machine. Uh -huh. So, I mean, this thing effortlessly does that. It has a bunch of USB-C outlets. So that runs like when I need to charge the nav systems for the boat or when I need to charge a phone, a camera, a drone. Uh, if I need to run uh, my iPad Pro, if I'm doing work on the boat, it does all of those things just absolutely effortless. And it's a surprisingly compact package. It is. I was going to say, I think the the form factor of that one is is really smart too. It's narrow. You know, it can fit on a shelf. It can fit into some areas that maybe these bigger units can't easily fit. No doubt. Um, and it's also flat on top, which that seems like a silly thing, but being able to securely rest your phone or a USB device on top of the battery that's charging, that is hugely valuable, you know, and some of these have flat uh, tops. Some don't. Some have fixed handles. Like, you know, the Jackery is great in a lot of ways, but it, it doesn't easily lend itself to stacking things on top of it. Sure. Not that a manufacturer would necessarily recommend stacking things on top of these, but you know, the reality is little things like that in the field go a long way. When you have limited space, it yeah. can be an additional surface. The only thing I noticed that I didn't care for that much about the EcoFlow was um, the fact that all of the USBs are on one side and all the 120 is on the other side. So if you do want to use it like slid back into a cabinet or whatever, you're now covering all of those ports on the other side or vice versa. Sure. The way that I've got it set up on the boat, which is just basically under the companionway step, it's not a problem, mm -hmm. but it, I could see how that could very easily become a concern of like, oh, the one that I need is now hidden by all it's these on bags the other side. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I, I believe I, I pointed that out in the article. That was one of the, the limitations, but um, they have since released some new products. Um, I think like the, the Delta Max. Oh, sweet. Um, which may have addressed some of those issues of bringing, you know, AC and USB ports to one side. Um, they also just released 
it might have been that max or even an additional unit that you can now take to an EV charging station and charge with oh, I saw that. a car charger. Same concept as as this unit. It, this one can take in 1700 watts AC. The one that goes to the, the EV charging station, it can take in a huge amount of power in a short period of time, wow. um, which is really smart. And I've seen, I've since seen a couple of the other manufacturers start to uh, integrate that charging technology, Jackery which I think is a, is a great kind of bargain option. You know, it's not too grand. It's about a thousand dollars for the one we tested for this article. They now have units that have integrated AC charging that, that let in a lot of power. So they charge much quicker. Uh, and that, you know, again, that is, it's a really great thing, especially for folks who are like not full-timing, you know, weekend warriors, people who just want to charge up their battery quick and have it last for a weekend. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's such a valuable feature to have. And it seems like the Jackery is really popular. I see a lot of people using them. Do you think it is because the price point is so accessible? I think that's part of it for sure. You know, it's one I, of the most popular ones I see out there. It is. It is. I think to be fair, I think they did a great job of marketing it too. You know, they got it in the hands of a lot of full-time travelers right off the bat. They said, here, take this out. We know it's going to work well in the field. Um, and so a lot of people have been using them and I'm sure giving good feedback because we've seen them adopt some of these features like that quick charging, you know, they've, they've done that faster than some of the other manufacturers, but yeah, the price point, I mean, it's hard, you know, when you look at all of these as a whole, most of them are over a thousand dollars. So to find one right around the thousand dollar price point is it's, it's a little more accessible. I'm not going to call that cheap, but for what you get, um, it feels like a good well, with a, a 46 amp hour bot battery. It looks like it has regulated solar input as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. It's got USB 3.0. It's got USB C. Yeah, it's I mean, it's got all of the features that that you would really want in one of these. The one we tested didn't have an output for integrating it with a hardwired system, but I believe some of their newer ones and some of their higher um, levels of units. This was the 1000. They have a 1500. They have a 2000. I think some of those do like a 30 amp output if you wanted to integrate them into a hardwired system like your Scout Camper. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a. I mean, and they're just super popular. Yeah, they're they're great. They offer a lot of different ones too. They have some really tiny ones, you know, for people that just want to be able to maybe keep a laptop and a bat and a camera battery charged. They have ones that are that small. And their solar panels are are great too. That it's a folding design. It's got a built-in kickstand to keep it at a forty-five degree angle, so it's pointed right at the sun. I mean, they their their whole ecosystem of products is is pretty well thought out. We're gonna take a brief break, and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. 
Well, let's talk about some of the other ones that you've seen on the market recently. You've got some additional considerations in the in the article. I guess the one that I'd like to bring up is that Red Arc is starting to pay attention to the success of these things. So they've developed some battery boxes as well that are going to be coming. Um, they're available currently in Australia. They've developed some solar panels as well. And of course, they have their own DC to DC chargers. They have a DC to DC and an AC to DC charging system that with integrated solar panels panel management as well. So Red Arc has got more solutions than before. They have a traditional solenoid operated dual battery system as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Red Arc comes up with in the next couple of years around these integrated systems like this. Definitely. Because they've done such a good job with the other overland components. So that'll be interesting to see. What were some of the other ones that you didn't test or that weren't included in the review that you liked? One of the ones that that I think is really compelling comes from this company called Energy, which is based out of Idaho. And I had one of their one of their earlier models called the Kodiak. It was similar power density to these, like I believe it was around 100 amp hours lithium, AC output, uh, 12 volt output. And their newer one is called the Flex. And it's it's cool because it separates the charge controller, AC, and all of the plug interfaces from the battery. So basically the battery is a base and the top, you just sit it on the battery, it plugs in. Oh, interesting. And so you can have multiple batteries and you can daisy chain them easily. Got it. I would have loved to test that one. Those guys, their their production model is more of like a Kickstarter kind of thing. So they don't necessarily have the inventory on hand to be able to send them out. But I had a good experience with that Kodiak. So I think they make a good quality product. And mm. from what I understand, their customer service is great. They're not as well known in like the overland and vehicle based travel space. They're more of like a, a home unit, or at least that's how they oh, market sure. themselves. But sure. again, having being able to have multiple batteries is pretty compelling for people that are maybe spending lots of time off grid or who just want more power in one of these all-in-one systems. That's one that's definitely worth looking at, especially if you go and search on Amazon. There are so many companies, um, mostly based in China that are producing these, these kind of all in one units. So beyond the energy, you know, it's really hard to say, I mentioned a few others, there's this Omni off grid blue Eddy, uh, Sunbox labs, I think is a us based one, but, um, there are a lot of other options out there. You know, the one thing I would just tell people to consider, you know, if you're looking at these alternatives that are maybe a little bit more affordable because they're newer in the space, customer service uh, and support could be very valuable to you if you have an issue, because again, you're not going to disassemble this to fix it if something goes wrong with it. And that's one of the advantages with these established brands is a lot so of them, true. a lot of them have us based customer support. There's probably going to be a person on the other end of the phone that you can get in touch with or via email, whereas some of these more affordable options that just sure. kind of come from overseas that don't really have, you know, the customer support system in place here. They may be difficult to work with if you have issues. So yeah, and on such an investment like a like a product like this, you want to make sure it's gonna they're gonna stand by it. Sure. And I do remember a few years ago we had a small issue with uh, one of the goal zeros and I didn't go through the PR channels or anything. I just called up customer service. I like to do that when I have an issue with a product just to see what typical consumer would experience. And they're like, oh yeah, no problem. We've actually seen that issue happen. It was the uh, battery was bulging a little bit in the case. Um, they're like, we've seen that happen on a couple of these things. No problem. We'll send you out an RMA and like done, send a new unit. Cool. So they were really great. And I know that companies like Dometic and, and that will also 
be that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. What an interesting development that we've seen over the last couple of years. I mean, this has really come in like barnstormed this whole segment because 10 years ago, you didn't really see stuff like this. Uh, Goal Zero was just coming into the space about 10 years ago. And now these things are everywhere. And they're also typically the the solution that people are picking. So I think it's important to talk about it. What do you think are some other considerations about how to reduce the cost of this kind of investment? Do you think that people will oftentimes buy too much capacity or how do you best determine the capacity that you need uh, for your vehicle? That really is the starting point, right? That's what you do when you're going to install or design and install a hardwired system. You, you really start by looking at what you need to power you know, on sure. a daily basis. And the math is not too difficult. I was mm-hmm. able to do it. I, I used to do terrible at math. So (laughs) if I can do it, anyone can do it. But you know, you look at the devices, you look at the power consumption, you multiply that by the number of hours you plan to run them. And before long, yeah, before long, you know how many amp hours you need. And then, and then you can go from there. Obviously it's easier to go overboard and have that buffer. Um, if power is really important to you, you know, unless it also you're, adds a lot of expense, it does, it does. And unless you're going way off the grid, you know, power is usually within reach. Yeah. So you can also go back to something as simple as like a 300 watt AC inverter that plugs into your auxiliary power outlet on your vehicle. You just run your vehicle when you need power. So you don't kill your battery. That makes it really simple. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's just, on demand, you know, you just get it when you need it. And and then you don't need battery, you don't need power storage, um, which is really the advantage of these, right? It's like the power is there. You don't have to be burning, uh, running a gasoline engine or a diesel engine to generate more power. And there are advantages to that too. It's nice and quiet. There's no fumes. Yeah, no question. So, but yeah, yeah, definitely replaced these and then more so these with a solar panel have almost completely replaced the need for a generator in the back country. Yeah. I mean, I would say just do the math, you know, do some, do some Googling, look for some resources, do the math, figure out what you're going to need, go from there. Yeah. And then buy the unit that's appropriate to your requirements, maybe upsizing it slightly to allow for some redundancy or some additional capacity should the requirements around your trip, your trip change or the weather conditions change. But for the most part, you don't want to overbuy because these can consume a lot of money, which can be used for fuel and border crossings and other interesting activities as a traveler. When you can save the money for the trip. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, thanks, Matt. You did such a great job on this article. Again, for those that are listening, uh, you can find the article in the fall 2021 edition of Overland Journal. It's the magazine that in many ways supports the podcast that you're listening to. Becoming a subscriber or picking up a back issue and enjoying this content that the team works so hard to put together uh, makes goes a long way towards helping the podcast as well. So we thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you all next time.